Welcome to the Rolling Reel with Renard, the podcast where we dive into the lives of extraordinary individuals. I'm your host, Renard, and today's guest is a retired Marine Corps veteran, a scholar of religion. He's also a former church planner at Fuller Seminary. He studied mental health at Liberty University and spiritual formation at Duke Seminary. Currently, he's pursuing a master's in clinical mental health counseling at the UNC Charlotte campus. Our guest is at the forefront of an independent research exploring the intersections of BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, therapy, spirituality, and psychotherapy. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, brother. It's great to have you here. Yeah, good to be here. All right, so let's just hop right on into it. So there's lots of layers in this fascinating journey that you've been on. Now, as a former, oh, I take it back, a Marine is always a Marine. Always a Marine. Sorry for that one, senor. So as a Marine veteran, how has your military experience shaped your approach to mental health and counseling? Oh, man, probably one of the most formational things for me as a as a clinician because my own individual journey through mental illness and receiving therapy while I was active duty experiencing a lot of the barriers to treatment things like stigma and what will people think how's this going to impact me is this a show of weakness even down to you know decisions prolonging decisions to take medication SSRIs and SNRIs and things that help with depression and anxiety and things like that. Not wanting to do that because of how I would be perceived as weak or even my own internal narratives that said, oh, you don't need that trash. You know, you can do this. And and really all it did was it prolonged the suffering that I was experiencing. And so it, it, it had a negative impact on me initially, but I'm grateful for that because it helped me to see that There are a number of other veterans, first responders, people who have these sort of preconceived notions of what going to therapy might be like and why it detours people. And it just made me really aware of a lot of the barriers that stand in the way from people getting some help that they really need. So right now, do you feel like the, or do you believe that the VA or all of these additional services that are out there, are they enough to help veterans hmm. from a mental health standpoint? Is there enough, are there enough resources available to help veterans? Yeah, that's a good question. So my experience with the VA has been pretty good, but I'll qualify that by saying that I, I haven't ever seen a mental health professional at the VA outside of like psychiatry, a referring clinician who set me up with a different counselor who was a civilian out in town. So the majority of the therapy that I've received through the VA has been through the VA in financial support, right? They, they foot the bill for me to be able to see a counselor who exists out in town independent of the VA. And they call that the community resources, right? So when the VA is often experiencing an overload in a department and they're not able to provide those particular benefits to service members, they'll just refer you to somebody out in town so that you can still get the help you need. And that's exactly what what was done for me. And in some ways I shaped that because as both a veteran and a pastor, 
I wanted to see somebody, I wanted to see a clinician who had a background in ministry because there's so many nuances and things. Really? I didn't want to have to explain it a million times. I just wanted somebody who, who has walked in that, those shoes before. And that's exactly what they did. They did a phenomenal job of placing me with a therapist who's also a pastor. And so when I came in the session at times, you know, saying, Hey man, I've had a really jacked up week. And, you know, I had this church person do this, or these people do that. He could look at me and be like, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, man. Yeah. My, my heart goes out to you. And so there was that relational component that was really important. As far as like having the resources enough, I think the VA has done a tremendous job providing resources to veterans, but I don't necessarily know that they're providing them in the most effective way because as a clinician now, I, I fully understand the importance of relatability as being the most important component to the therapeutic relationship between the client and the clinician. So how well does this person connect with their therapist? Well, if you're a veteran, first responder, somebody from a, a really intense background, it's not really that easy to relate to people outside of that background. And so I think it would be good for the VA to consider ways in which we might find clinicians that are a little bit more relatable, maybe clinicians who are former veterans themselves or people who, you know, participate in combat sports is an example, or, you know, things that just make give a little bit more relational substance to meeting with veterans. Right. Yeah. So right now your academic journey spans, it's wide. Yeah. Religion, spiritual formation, church planting. How do these fields influence your understanding of mental health and therapy? Good question. Yeah, it's been a journey for sure. And in a lot of ways, very unanticipated. How so? I've always been deeply fascinated with existential questions. You know, why are we here? What is this life all about? Is there a purpose? Is there a God? If there is, what does that mean? Am I going to go to hell if I do bad things? Am I going to go to the good place if I do good things? All those questions were really fascinating for me, even as a kid. And I didn't have a whole lot of spiritual direction growing up. Right. Both my parents were addicts. And so that created a, a very colorful childhood for me. But from my earliest years, I can remember my mother always, we would pray at night. And they were, you could call them generic prayers. We didn't pray to Jesus. We just prayed to God, right? And there was no like explanation of who God was. It was just this this entity that existed that was benevolent and that cared about me and that we prayed and gave thanks to God for what we had, which was very little, but there was always a, a, a spirit of gratitude. And then we could ask for things, right? Like ask for a home or ask for, you know, food or, or money or help heal my friend who's sick or whatever. And, and so I remember that as far back as I can remember. And that kind of stayed with me until my teenage years and i had a, a really cool experience at a at a hindu worship place called the city yoga center in hollywood i'm from southern california originally and okay so i was there with my grandmother and i just had this really cool moving experience where i felt electrified like felt very alive in a way that i hadn't before 
And later I would come to acquire new language that would help me describe that as a, as a very spiritually moving experience. Yes. So that sort of launched my personal hunger for answers into the spiritual realm. And of course that encompassed religion because I think religion at its most functional capacity is like language. It helps us to understand humanity's encounters with the divine from all different kinds of cultural perspectives and places and times. And so, yeah. I like humanity's encounters with the divine. Never heard that before, but it puts things in perspective from where you're coming from. So now I appreciate you, uh, you sharing that. And then as far as going back to a potential myth are, and you said this as well, are people, are there certain branches of the military more likely to resist therapy than other branches? I don't know about branches per se, but I would say within each branch, maybe like sub-communities. So like my mind immediately goes to an infantry person versus somebody who's maybe serving as like a nurse's aide or a corpsman, you know? So those, those two worlds within the military are so different. One is full of like bravado and strength and the mochismo of like, I'm a, do we cuss on here? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> like I'm, I'm a badass motherfucker, you know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't go to therapy, what are you talking about? You know, right. versus somebody who's in the medical field and they're like, yeah, if I'm feeling depressed, I'm going to go talk to the doc about seeing somebody and taking some meds. And, you know, so I think I don't think there's a branch that's more resistant or non-resistant, but I think there's probably sub-communities that are certainly more resistant or open. So why is therapy getting help? Why is that frowned upon? Oh, man, there's a lot of a lot of layers there that interestingly they're very similar in my research i've found that the similarities between military service and first responder communities are are similar in that the barriers and stigmas all kind of revolve around perception of the individual from the individual perspective perceiving themselves like if i do this am i admitting that i am weak right am i not able to handle my own stuff then there's the perception of others about the individual. For example, if I'm, a, if I'm a police officer or a firefighter, or if I am in the military and I start to go receive treatment, start talking to a counselor, maybe now I'm starting to take some medication for anxiety or depression. Now there's questions that arise in the mind of the team, right? It can so-and-so still do their job? Are they, are they messed up in some way, right? Can I depend on them okay. to do their job? because now they're going and getting help, which tells me there's something wrong, right? Well, the reality is, is that most of us are walking around and there's something wrong and we're not getting treated for that. And yet we're still doing our jobs by and large until maybe there's a breaking point. And by that time, now we're, we're, we're doing cleanup instead of preventive maintenance. Then there's all this other stuff with like promotion potential, you know? What does that mean? Well, so in most, professions, there's always this continuing education piece and you want to progress, you want to learn new skills, you want to get better, you want to meet these training requirements. So you got to go away to this school or that school or get this certification. Well, if you're going to therapy because you've got to address something, maybe it's job related, maybe it's not, or maybe it's a combination of those two things. Now you're not as available to go and do these training things that you need to do 
to follow pace with your promotion potential because you got to address your healing, right? I got to right. fix what's wrong. And so now there's like, it's affecting your job performance. And plus, you know, frankly, I hate to say it, but there are, again, the perception by superiors is like, oh, well, maybe we don't want to put Billy in that kind of leadership role because he's dealing with stuff. Oh, that's unfortunate. So at what point do people start to seek uh, help? Like, when is it, when is it okay to seek help? Yeah, it, it, I think it's different for everybody. I think, like I said, there's some people that they don't get help until the problems become so bad that they're mandated to get help. I think about substance abuse is one of those examples. People who, you know, they're, they're self-regulating and they're coping with their mental illness or their emotional illness with alcohol or drugs. And what starts out as, you know, just a self-regulatory use becomes something that takes over. And then it starts to have a negative impact on other areas of their life, personal life, relationships, their work life. Maybe they're, maybe there's abuse. Maybe they're not showing up on time. Maybe they're disheveled looking and they're just, you know, or they get a DUI is often the case, right? They get a DUI, they get in trouble with the law. Then that catches the attention of their, their command, who they belong to. And now there's, there's systems in place. It's like, oh, you got popped for DUI. Now you got to go see the substance abuse counselor and go to these classes and do all this stuff, right? To sort of get back in line. And of course, all of that hinders promotion potential and career progression. And in fact, it actually makes it worse for the individual because they were already suffering for, from some sort of mental illness. Now there's punitive stuff coming down on them and now they're being forced to get help. And so for some, it's not a choice. For others, something changes in them. You know, maybe it's an internal recognition. Maybe it's somebody externally saying, hey, I felt like you felt before and I went and talked to this person and it really helped. I don't know, maybe check it out. And so they decide to give it a chance and sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. Do they form communities or kind of like support groups? Is that a common, is that something that would be a common practice, you know, just for guys to get together and just talk, just kind of like a group talking session? In the military or outside of the military? In the military. And then, because I know that they have support, I don't want to, I, I don't want to use the term support group, you know, but it's just hey, a bunch of guys, friends, they all get together for camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they, then they, then it seems like that's the environment where they can share their thoughts or feelings amongst each other. Yeah. Yeah, there are, there are support groups. There's group therapy that service members can be a part of. It's not I don't know that it's mandated necessarily. Maybe for some it is, but I remember when I was going through treatment, individual treatment, there was always the option that I could go to a group setting if I wanted to. I never did. But fundamentally, you know, the Marine Corps at least and most military branches are leadership is so important and small unit leadership is is the crux of where leadership really thrives and that's engaged leadership where your NCOs if they're worth a damn, you know, they're, they're taking an interest in their Marines or their soldiers or their airmen or their sailors and, and getting them together regularly and, and saying like, hey, how are we doing, right? Like, especially if you're on deployment, something happens, somebody gets blown up or something, you know, catastrophic happens, pulling your people together 
and checking on them, doing a pulse check. Hey, that was some heavy shit. Like, how are you doing? Do you need to talk? Like, how can I help? How's your family doing? I mean, genuine care and concern, that authenticity, a lot of the things that we do just in general that we're all kind of wanting, but maybe not verbalizing, like just doing those things is tremendously helpful. In fact, there's research out there that, that says groups that meet for an intended purpose like that, like a, a therapeutic sort of just talking session, right? Even if it's, you know, hey, we're getting together once a week to drink coffee and just talk about stuff is just as effective in a non-therapeutic setting as group therapy in a therapeutic setting. And so that just points us to the importance and the effectiveness of catharsis, like telling our story and getting that stuff out, you know? Yes. Yeah. Without judgment. Yeah, right. Yeah, or fear of uh, rejection. Yes. And so what about the, you know, your inspiration behind your research on that intersection of BJJ therapy, spirituality, and psychotherapy? Like, how do these elements complement each other? Mm, yeah, good question. So the idea for BJJ therapy, you know, arguably <laughs> existed way before either of us were even on this planet, right? And as practitioners, you and I both know how effective and transformative jujitsu is. And it's, for me, it started out as an opportunity to build relationships with people. And so when I was doing my capstone project for my church planting studies at Fuller, I had to develop a church plant model. And, and I've always looked at the way that church planting was done and thought that it was the most ineffective thing ever, right? Like most people planting churches say, I'm going to, I'm going to look at what the needs are in this community. I'm going to go there. I'm going to erect a building or I'm going to rent some space. I'm going to put out some banners and then I'm going to signal to the community like, Hey y'all, we've arrived and you should come and hang out with us. Cause we're different and we're edgy and, you know, come and worship in, in this new space with us. That's like so labor intensive, man. I mean, and, and now you're asking people to come to you. So for me, it always seemed much more effective to go to where people were already naturally gathering and just inject yourself into that space not to be like a weird creeper and like, like, Oh, I'm a Christian. Do you know what would happen to you if you died tonight? Like, <laughs> are you going to go to heaven or hell? You know, like that's so weird, but just to be in the space and like connect with people. And so I was talking to my buddy, Tulsa, Tulsa Simpson. He's, he's the black belt instructor of groundstone jujitsu and Sneeds Ferry. And we were talking one day and he's like, well, dude, I mean, do you want to do something here at the Academy? So we, we kicked around some ideas and we ultimately ended up with starting a group called Grappling the Spirit. And Grappling the Spirit like was sort of a double entendre with, you know, grappling that we're doing jujitsu. And then afterward, we'd stay for a while and we would grapple some spiritual questions. Right. And it took off, man. I mean, sometimes there was just me and one other person. Sometimes there was me and a dozen people. And we would talk about everything from you know, ancient aliens and Judeo-Christian beliefs and Babylonian creation myths and, you know, animism, Native American cultures. I mean, there was nothing too taboo for that forum. And what I learned in that space was that, you know, people by and large, I think in our country are becoming more and more post-religious. They're recognizing that like mainstream religion and the boxes that those create don't really fit well with them. And they're kind of like, 
icky. You know, they're like, they want to move away from it. They don't quite understand it, but what they do understand is that it's not really for me, but I still have all these spiritual questions and I want answers. And so people are, whether they admit to it or, or have language to put to it or not, they still have the same questions. They have those same existential questions that I had as a kid, you know, that was like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Is there a God? Like, what the hell does any of this matter? And they're looking for spaces that are not intimidating or not demanding of them th- so that they could explore it. Right. So yeah, we did that. We did grappling the spirit and we learned a lot and connected with some good people. And then I began to see how much more potential lied within that model. What was the tip off? Well, I mean, you know, you hear so often, like if it wasn't for jujitsu, I don't think I'd even be here today. Right. And then you look at like YouTube channels, like map made and those cats that travel around to all these different training academies across the country. And they do these like 60 minute or 60 second snippets of people's testimonies who are saying like how jujitsu saved their life. You know, jujitsu transformed this. I was an alcoholic or I was, you know, had anger issues or whatever. Right. But all these different people from different walks of life struggling with all kinds of stuff. And jujitsu is like this lowest common denominator that, that is transformative for them. And so you start to just look at like all of these testimonies for people. And then you start seeing the lived out experience of people transforming right before your eyes. And it's like, well, everybody, it's like, everybody knows this, but nobody's, nobody can prove this empirically. And so that's for me was like, well, if everybody already knows this in our academic communities, like the only way to, to validate something is to prove it, right? You like, show me the numbers, show me the data. And I'm like, well, shit, man, nobody's doing that. So I'll do it, you know, and that was a huge challenge that you stepped up and knocked it out of the park. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a work in progress, but it's fun. I, I really enjoy it. And I've been able to connect with some cool people along the way. And I love this community because it, it really is like, you know, despite all the different personalities of training academies around the country and around the world, the jujitsu family is, I have found to be so welcoming and cool. I contacted the, the cats from MapMade and I told them who I was and what I was doing. And they didn't even, they were like, whatever you need, bro. Like if we can help in some way, just let us know. Like you want a segment, you want a list of all the gyms that we've been to, like just tell us what you need. We got gotcha. you. There was a book that came out last April called Healing Trauma with Jiu-Jitsu by Anna Perkle and, Anna per- and Jamie, so I can't remember her last name, but they are two clinicians who are also Jiu-Jitsu practitioners. And they wrote this book from a trauma-centered perspective of how, how people are bringing all kinds of trauma with them into training and highlighting a need for more trauma-informed jujitsu coaches and professors to be able to make jujitsu more accessible to a population of people who are bringing a lot of baggage to the table, you know? Yes. And I'm trying to get you the name of the author, Transforming Trauma with jujitsu. Is that it right there? Yeah. Anna Perkle and I have it right here. Anna Perkle and Jamie March. Merrick. Merrick. Yep. That's it. That's exactly it. Okay. Yeah, that's it. And it received a lot of, a lot of ratings. 4.6. Interesting. We need to pick that book up right there. So just kind of going back to 
what we were talking about before, you're transitioning from a military career to pursue a master's in clinical mental health counseling. That's a big shift, first and foremost. What really prompted you to make that transition? And think about what lessons from the military do you apply in your counseling studies? Mm. Yeah, there, there's a piece in there that exists in between those two things, and that's ministry for me. So I didn't leave the military intending to become a, a mental health practitioner. I retired from the military to become a, a pastor. And I had already been pastoring a church part-time while I was on active duty and doing that for a number of years part-time. And I just felt like I was very disenchanted with the military industrial complex. You know, you, you, you become more senior and you start to climb the, the rank ladder and you start to serve in, in different capacities. And it goes from being a very tactical level, boots on the ground, hey, we're, we're fighting wars or we're doing like counter drug interdiction stuff to now you're like sitting up in this plush office somewhere serving a general staff and and you're seeing all the politics that go into the meat making, you know? And, and for right. me, it was just like, well, I don't want to do this crap. You know what I mean? Like I, I have no desire to do this, you know, none whatsoever. So I became by and large just disenchanted. And at the same time, I felt this arising urge to pursue full-time ministry. And it was a risk, man. It was a big, I stepped out in faith. I didn't know how I was going to make ends meet or like, I was taking a huge pay cut doing it. And it was just really miraculous for me, the way that God showed up and just kind of bridged the gap between all these insecurities that I had and like made things come together in a way that I feel like only God could. So like I had a full ride to Duke. That wasn't something, you know, that's not something that you just like, oh, I think I'd like a full ride to Duke Seminary, you know, and like, bam, that shows up. A lot of the little things like that. So I, I went into ministry full time for a number of years and it was really COVID that was the tipping point for me. I was the associate pastor of a church in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I was I was doing these daily video devotionals, you know, trying to stay connected to my congregation when we were in lockdown. And, and I was meeting with people virtually and it was just becoming very clear and evident that I, I did not have the tools or the training to be able to handle some of the mental illness that I was experiencing with some of my people. And, and quite frankly, like not to detract from prayer, but you know, there's only so, only so many times you can say to somebody like, oh, that sucks, man. Like, let me pray for you, right? Like that's not really leading to any sort of immediate relief in the ways that we would like for it to, if we're being honest. And so I started just thinking like, yeah, I, I want to be able to help people in this interpersonal capacity more than I'm able to now. So a series of events led me down a road where I ended up here at UNC Charlotte and uh, relocating here to the, the Mooresville area. And so I'm, I don't know, maybe, you know, 60% through the program. And what's interesting is like so much of my military background has come to bear on me as a clinician. In fact, like, you know, I was a recruiter for three years. So I did all this sales training and like learned how to listen actively and like help people, you know, find the need behind the need. And these concepts that were very new to me then that are, have become a, a big part of who I am as a person, which has helped me along in ministry, but it's proven to be so valuable in my studies as a clinician because they're, it's kind of the same skill set. It's just under different terms, different labels. Yeah. 
So yeah, a lot of what I've been doing in class is like, like, oh, okay, well, I knew that and this is a better way to apply it. So I, I feel like I had a good groundwork already in place and this program is just enhancing that. It seems like it. So the trigger was you're an associate pastor. You have some folks coming to you more or less just confiding in you about what's going on in their day-to-day life. And at some point, it got to the point where you're like, whoa, this is a little bit uh, over my head mm-hmm, yeah. right now, and I need to get some additional training. Were you at any point referring them to other people? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just bi- good business practice, right? Hey, this is kind of beyond my scope. I would love to pray with you, but I think maybe talking to a healthcare somebody might be in your best interest because I think there's more here than what I can help with in a spiritual capacity. And, and again, I saw that stigma come front and center with the way that, that some people received that. You know, some were really open and some particularly older white men were like, yeah, no, <laughs> that's not a thing, man. I don't, we don't No, I'm good. Wait, what's not a thing? seeking mental health therapy okay yeah all right so they they just immediately rejected you or rejected the idea yeah it was almost like reflexive you know like like oh no they just kind of balked at it and when i say older i'll qualify that they're you know i'm talking like late 50s early to mid 60s and and above so totally different generation fair enough yeah understood so what challenges and breakthroughs have you encountered in your independent research, you know, particularly in exploring uncharted territories in that intersection of BJJ therapy, spirituality, and psychotherapy? Wow. You know, like anything new, I think a a challenge I've seen is just people kind of reading a flyer or they hear, you know, we pass it in class at the end of class. Hey, if anybody's interested in doing this, this research group, right. there's kind of like the eyebrows that go up and like, what is that? Nobody has done it in this capacity. I take that back. There, there are people who are exploring the, the therapeutic aspects of jujitsu for sure, but it isn't so mainstream that people know what that is. And so a hurdle has been overcoming the the lack of knowledge and and then educating people on i think really like confidentiality you know people are already kind of skeptical and then there's this immediate sense of vulnerability like well if i participate in this like who's going to know that you know are are you telling anybody that like so educating people and letting them know what confidentiality is and the extent of that and how we as researchers seek to preserve their their confidentiality. We don't want to make anything worse for them. And then consistency. Some people are really bought in. They get it. They want to be a part of it. And they show up every time. Right. And and then there are some that come and they're well intentioned, but life happens or maybe their their psyche gets the best of them and they kind of trickle off somewhere throughout the study which always makes research consistency challenging when you've got people that are dropping out. So you can't, you can't count any of their data if they drop out because they didn't finish the study and they didn't meet the parameters that everybody else did. So they're sort of like this weird outlier. So yeah, I mean, those, those would be a few of the challenges. Fair enough. Uh, When you have someone who decides to back out of the study 
are you able to have a conversation to understand why and potentially, I don't want to say talk them back into it, but encourage them to complete the study? Maybe in some cases, I think for me, the importance is understanding what circumstances have led to their decision to not participate and not really, it's not agenda driven. I'm not, if someone's like, Hey, I'm just, I'm not feeling it. You know, I'm not going to try to convince them to come back into the study, but it is helpful for me to know if there are certain things that have happened that would be like a deterrent for future participants, right? Things that I could do better from, from a principal investigator standpoint, when I structure my research, could I do this differently that might make it more appealing for participation or at least not have some of these elements that have deterred people? And of course, you don't know that unless someone's telling you. So, yeah, that, that's like that's helpful for me. The challenging thing is when, when people just ghost you and then like don't say anything at all. You can't get a hold of them. You know what I mean? And you're like, OK, well, all good. So as someone who's deeply engaged in the world of mental health and counseling, what changes or advancements do you hope to see in the field in the coming years? Oh, man. Where do I start? How much time do we have? <laughs> I would love to see more men, frankly, enter the field, particularly like people that are not what you would expect. Like I, I have so many people, so many dudes that come to me and, and want to engage in therapy and they don't even know me, right? But like, I'm covered in tattoos. I practice jujitsu. I'm not the kind of guy that you might assume you're walking in to go to therapy with, you know what I mean? And I think that that is a draw for some people because going back to that relatability piece, like we, we wanna connect, we connect easily, well, more easily with people who look like us, right? And, and we don't necessarily feel maybe a sense of judgment right. when you've got, I don't want to be judgmental or crass, but let's just say you've got like, you know, your middle-aged white guy, you know, who's wearing a cardigan and like right. <laughs> glasses. He's sitting there like, come on in, sir, have a seat. Let's talk. You know, that's a very sterile environment and maybe triggering for people. But when you see a guy who's, you know, late thirties and doesn't look like your run of the mill therapist, it's like, oh, well, that guy kind of looks like me or looks like the people that I'm orbiting, you know, like, okay, that's different. So I'd like to see more diversity. I'd like to see more people who look differently, who are able to offer more in the way of connectionalism for people who might be dipping a toe in the water, you know, hey, I don't know about this, but let me check it out. Plus I'm like one of the only dudes in my program. I mean, I'm in a class right now of couples counseling. I'm the only male in the class of 23 women, and that includes both the professor and the doctoral student. So there's not a whole lot of dudes going through the program right now. And I, I really, any dudes listening who are, you know, even considering it, do it. And what's the program that you're a part of? I'm in the master's program for clinical mental health counseling at UNC Charlotte. So phenomenal program, great faculty, one of the best in the country. You know, like any like any program, it's it's got room for improvement, but I'm I'm really happy with it. So, how can individuals, especially those within the military community, benefit from the insights and the practices you've developed through your really multi-faceted journey? Oh man, that's um, that's deep. 
Short answer, I don't know. You know, everybody's different. Everybody's got their own story. And, and I guess if I was like imparting things to consider, I always hate to say oh, like absolutely. advice. But what are some of the, let me just tee this up then yeah. to ask. What recommendation, best practices, advice, suggestions, what have you, could you recommend if I had a friend who was former military and he was struggling mentally, you know, he had emotional struggles, what would you say to that individual right there or recommendations uh, that you can uh, suggest? Yeah. As a friend, I would want that person to know unequivocally that I was there for them for the long haul, right? That like whether they choose to get therapy or not, that there's always that I'm there as their friend to walk with them through whatever they're going through. And even being willing to maybe explore a therapeutic exploration with them. That's not unheard of. I mean, it's not super common, but like if I had a client who was like, hey, I, this is my first time here and I brought a friend because I'm not really super comfortable with this. Is that okay? I would be like, hell yeah, that's okay. Cool. I mean, as long as you're cool with them knowing your business, I'm cool with that. So really just walking with people through it. And as far as advice goes for, you know, transitioning military, trying to figure out what it is that they're going to do. Is this going to be a stepping stone? Is this going to be the next big thing? I would say just take that step. Don't be afraid to fail. I know it's scary and there's no getting around it, right? You can, unless you're walking into some job security right out of the, the military, it's, it's scary. You're leaving a, a first and the 15th paycheck from Uncle Sam and you know it's going to be there like clockwork. And when you leave that behind and you step into the, the great unknown, as it were, you know, there's, there's no contract that's telling you you're going to get paid. It's all like, well, I, I hope this works out. <laughs> right. But I wouldn't discount the learning opportunity in stepping out and doing something really uncomfortable because you learn a lot about yourself. And what was some of the first things that you did when you first decided to step away from the military? It's yeah. Like, okay, I'm... A free man now, or if that's what you're thinking, but what were some of the first things that you did? Well, like any, anybody who spent their, their teenage life in their young twenties, you know, bound to an organization that, that has some strict grooming standards. I, I stopped cutting my hair and I let the beard just get wild and crazy and ended up looking like a, an unsheltered vagrant for a while. And my wife was not super stoked about that, but, um, <laughs> you know, you just, you just explore all the things that you couldn't do for the last 20 years. And, and I did a, a lot of panicking, man. I mean, I, like I said, this, the uncertainty of what's going to happen and how's this all going to pan out. And am I going to be able to pay the rent or the, keep the lights on or, you know, do Christmas for my family? I mean, those are all really real challenges that you can't ignore. And, and it's testing, you know, it really does test your resolve. And I think more than anything, your belief in yourself, can I do this? Because there's the military for as challenging as it is, it becomes a sort of a safety net, you know, where it's like I, whether I do great or I do okay, in the end, I'm still getting paid. You know, my family's still taken care of. We still have medical benefits and, and housing allowance and, you know, all these things. And so it's just, I think maybe dealing with uncertainty how do we deal with uncertainty when the safety net gets taken away? What do you suggest? 
prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance, right? <laughs> That's what my gunny always used to say. And, and then I became a gunny and I was saying the same thing. And, and it's true though, right? Like, you know, if you have things coming up on the horizon, like plan for them, you know what I mean? Develop a plan, work the plan, identify barriers, come up with ways to circumvent those barriers. I mean, mission accomplishment, nothing changes. I mean, all the things that we learn in the military or in the first responder community, they, it's all still applicable. Like you, you have a mission, you have objectives, you have pros and cons, you've got strengths and weaknesses, you've got critical vulnerabilities. I mean, how do you navigate all of that stuff and still accomplish the mission? So if you look at it from that perspective, bridging the gap between military and civilian life isn't so challenging, you know what I mean? Right, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, because we're just talking concepts, principles. I mean, it's that's universal Yeah, that's universal. So how does education work after you get out of the military as far as getting additional training to move into a different industry or field? Yeah, good question. So if you qualify and qualification is based off of the category of your discharge, the length of service, and if you have any disabilities or not, but let's say you qualify for everything, right? There's two two benefit packages that you can receive as a veteran. One is a program called vocational rehab. And that's a program that basically sends you to school, to a trade school, to a university. And it's like a recategorization, a retraining of you to do a different job. So hence the vocational rehabilitation. And the military pays for that. They pay for that and they pay for you to have, they give you rent money every month in addition to your educational benefits. And that is so helpful for people, particularly service members who've, who've gifted their post 9-11 GI benefits, which is your normal college education benefits. You can gift that to your spouse or to your children. And so if you've done that, then you, you essentially have your own educational benefits that you can receive, even though you've given yours away to your family because there are two different pots of money. For those who haven't given those benefits away, they can use both. So they can do vocational rehab, go to school, get another degree or whatever, and then still use their GI benefits to continue to go to school or go to a trade school or some sort of specialty certification or something like that. So man, the VA really like knocks it out of the park with that stuff because it's amazing. Okay, so if you wouldn't mind transitioning to your practice, what's the deal? Well, give us the 411 yeah. in your practice. It's brand new. Yeah, it is. So I started it this year. And, and so in full disclosure, like I'm not a licensed mental health care provider in the state of North Carolina yet. I haven't finished my training. I haven't sat through the exams yet. So, so legally, I can't say that I am a licensed clinical healthcare provider, right? So, but life coaching is legal in the state of North Carolina. And, and though I hate the term life coach, I think it's just tainted and it has its own stigma. <laughs> I like to consider myself a personal development consultant, right? So I'm somebody that you might consult with to learn how to set some goals, maybe do some self-analysis. Hey, I've got this thing that I do and I really don't like it. Or, hey, I've gotten myself into a bit of a pickle with my wife because, you know, maybe I've got some unhealthy behavior outside of my marriage and I really want to fix that. The most common thing that I help people with is, is working through questions like, 
I want to understand why I do the things I do, or I want to understand why I think the way that I think. And ultimately, is there anything I can do to change these things that I don't like about myself? And the answer is yes. There's a ton of things that we can all do. We all have personal agency and power. And even though at times we feel powerless, talking to somebody and recognizing the ways in which you do have power can be empowering. And having that outside perspective to maybe ask you questions in a strategic way to uncover some of the things that you that have just been covering up your own ability to answer your own questions, right? I take what's called a person-centered approach, and I believe that we all have the answers to the questions that we seek inside of us. And the challenge is that we sometimes don't believe that we have the answers, and so it becomes inherently a journey to figuring it out. And if you don't have a guide to help you figure things out or find things that have been misplaced, it can be a daunting task to think that change is possible, particularly when you're talking about behavioral change or like things that are related to addiction or just these deeply rooted behavioral mechanisms that like I've always done things this way and I don't know how to change that, whether those things are healthy or not, you know. So I do what you could say personal development consulting. I also do leadership development consulting and I even do business consulting. So a lot of what I did in the military was strategic planning and so helping businesses just develop their communication strategies and how to function more optimally, eliminate redundancy. Yeah, so just sort of like business enhancement type stuff too. So it isn't just personal development, it's relational development between couples. That's another aspect of jujitsu that I haven't even touched on yet, but marriage therapy using jujitsu. But yeah, man, that's, I kind of do a little bit of everything in that, in that world. That's an interesting area to explore couples jujitsu, how the man rolls with his counterpart, mm -hmm. his wife can share a lot of insight mm -hmm. and also how she responds and how she rolls with them. We were, I was just having a conversation about this with a friend of mine, Damien. She owns a jiu-jitsu school in Hawaii. And we got to talking about the therapeutic benefits, of course, of rolling mm -hmm. over an extended period of time. And how you feel when you walk in and how you feel well, when you walk out are completely different. And then she was sharing with me, you know, the idea of therapy and cu with couples. And I said, like, that can mend a lot of relationships. Mm -hmm. That can really, because, because the guys are not always going to be outspoken. They're not going to be very talkative. And so the way that things are expressed are different from a male perspective to a female's perspective. And this could be a common, you know, a common language, almost like a platform that sends or translates, you know, this language, this language. It's a language translator. Mm -hmm in a sense. And so, and I see how I am with my wife now when I roll with her and how she has developed a better relationship with our two sons because they're now starting to roll with her. Mm -hmm. And she only got into jujitsu because, well, one, her husband does this, but even after 19 years, it took her 19 years mm -hmm. to finally get into it. But I think she's noticed a relationship shift between the boys and I, because we have this commonality 
or we'll talk jujitsu, we'll, you know, mess around in the kitchen and all that mm-hmm. stuff right there. And it's like, well, I want to, I want to do it too. Yeah. yeah right. It kind of do. But she will never, ever say that until she just won't say it. You know, but it's one of those things where I'm just observing, but that could be the next big thing for you, buddy. Oh man, I can't Couples. wait. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to do that. So I have an interesting relationship with, with my research and the church because the church for me, it offers sort of a test bed to like do these micro experiments in the context of ministry. And like if I do a couples class or a marriage, yes. marriage class, incorporating an element like this into that as like a rider that people aren't expecting and say like, Oh yeah, for the next four weeks, we're going to do this and then kind of judging and getting a feel for it before I actually implement that into like formal research is pretty neat. But yeah, I mean, you know, one of the biggest causes of marital relationship problems is what's called relational drift. So you would think it might be like money or infidelity. You know, those are two big things that do impact marriage. But beyond that, it's drift where people drift away from one another and they do it in these like silent silos because maybe they're avoidant or they don't like conflict or they've tried to deal with it in the past and nothing's worked. And so they just kind of like quietly accept it on the outside, but inside they're brooding and just building resentment. And so they just drift apart. And so what I see like being effective with jujitsu is you've got two people who are drifting and they're lacking intimacy and maybe their sexual connection is dead or it's dying or there's, there's just no fun anymore in the relationship. Well, you put those two people together on a mat and, and now all of a sudden the whole purpose of them being there is to touch one another and to roll with one another and to, you know, play in a sense, like you're, you're, they're playing again and they're touching and they're interacting and there's now there's maybe some giggling and, and there's just this levity that's being injected into this stale state of things. And man, it just gives me great hope for, for the potential of jujitsu as a therapeutic modality, because I think the sky's the limit. Wouldn't it be interesting in order for you to get divorced, you must go through the white and blue belt together as a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Right. With all your uh, mediators and attorneys present. (laughs) Yes. You you cannot get divorced until you go through jujitsu therapy. Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. We need uh, some legislature, you know, that'd be bold enough to (laughs) enforce that. Yeah. But this is a remarkable conversation. There's obviously a very serious need to address and help eliminate the stigma that military folks have about getting therapy because the suicide rate seems to be climbing. Oh man, it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. You know, despite the stigma, people are still, you know, they're still suffering. And I think it's going to take someone like you, former military, tatted up dude, you know, jujitsu guy, pastor, you know, well-educated person. So you can play all sides. And so you're going to be that guy who's relatable. And it's my hope that if anyone's listening, that one and first things first, there are people who need love and support you. You just have to take the first step and let people know that you do need a little assistance. If you guys are interested in connecting with Josh for life coaching, enhanced, enhanced, ultra enhanced (laughs) life coaching. One more time, how can that happen? Yeah, they can just Google. My practice is called Eventide Lifestyle Design in Mooresville. 
North Carolina so they can they can Google the practice. They can send me an email, shoot me a, a message and set something up with me. I'm getting kind of over inundated with requests as of late. And and so it, if I'm not directly available, I have other people that are frankly like way more qualified and just super badass better than me that I can refer people to. So don't, you know, I would say don't let that be a hindrance. Reach out to me. If I can't help you directly, I'll connect you with somebody who can for sure. All right. And once again, the name of the business is called? Eventide Lifestyle Design. Very nice. And one thing I, I really hope everyone was able to capture from this conversation is that there are options. You don't have to go with the traditional way of therapy that your friends or your parents may have gone through. This approach is very, very innovative. So even if you're unable to travel to Mooresville and be seen by Josh, join a jiu-jitsu school and stick with it. The first year, it's going to be a wonderful roller coaster of experiments, experiences, relationships, but stick with it. And you'll notice that when you walk in, you may be a little stressed out, but when you walk out, you should have a smile so big on your face, you can shove a banana in there sideways. <laughs> yeah, true that. Yes. So Josh, thank you again. And also certainly keep up the wonderful research that you're currently doing right now. This is app. I just went through his slide deck. It's phenomenal. You know, the group therapy, you know, BJJ therapy is going to be on the horizon and you're going to be in 20, 30 years, the father of BJJ therapy. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even care about the credit for real. Cause that's, I don't even warrant any credit, frankly, but yeah, just really quick. Let me just say very briefly that the, the results of our study, we did a, a six week study with 12 individuals, all of whom have a trauma background. And what we learned over six weeks is very consistent with some of the other studies that have been done and that there is a, a drastic reduction in stress, anxiety, depression, PTSD, in addition to other mental illnesses. And so this isn't just like kind of at the onset, we said everybody knows how effective it is, but you can't prove it. Well, now we can prove it, right? Not just with my research, but with some of the other research that's out there. And I suspect it'll just continue to grow. So yeah, if you're looking for something that is is proven to be effective at reducing those symptoms and increasing you know, strength and self-esteem and self-image and self-concept, all of that can be done through this vehicle, and it is, and that's what makes it so transformational. Sign up at your local jujitsu school. Yeah, man. Hey, everyone. Thank you again for joining us on this episode. And if you have any questions for our guests or suggestions for the future episodes, feel free to reach out. In the meantime, stay tuned for some more inspiring conversations on Rolling Real with Renard. Until next time, keep rolling with the real stories that shape our world. Gotta go. See you. Love you. Bye.